of the principles that we hold to at our church is to teach through the Bible. I exercise from time to time my pastor's prerogative to cover topical things that I think are important, but always straight from God's word. And they're usually in the interim as we study through the Bible between books that we are going through. You know, really, as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of the scriptures, we'll also grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and his plan for us. And the hope is as well is that we would also grow in our love for one another, that we would be those men and the women that God has created us to be. And it's all due to the work of the Holy Spirit through his living word, the Bible, which many churches will not even bring out these days, is living and it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It meets you exactly where you're at. And so Paul's letter to Titus, as I give you, as I mentioned, a quick introduction. It's part of a collection of letters known as the pastoral epistles. And this is the third letter in that collection. The first two were found in 1st and 2nd Timothy that we studied already. It's believed that Paul the Apostle wrote this letter to Titus about the same time that he wrote his first letter to Timothy. Paul wrote to both Timothy and Titus while he was in prison, in between those imprisonments, between, I think we would see between 63 and, or actually 62 and 65 AD, somewhere in between those three years. And many believe that it was written about 63 AD. But Titus was on the island of Crete. This was about 100 miles southeast of Greece, uh, this island, and was known in the ancient world. And it's important to know the area that you're living in. Uh, the, when you study the scriptures, to know the, the context of what is being communicated. But Titus is doing the work of the Lord. He is overseeing churches. He is doing the work of the ministry on the island of Crete. This island had one of the most prosperous business centers in the ancient times. It had a powerful agricultural industry. Now, the island of Crete it wasn't that big, but it was, I guess, large for island size. If you've ever lived on any of the Hawaiian islands, like take Maui, for instance, Crete is approximately 160 miles long and 35 miles wide. That's about three times longer than the island of Maui. When I lived on Maui, you could drive around the entire island in one day. And a lot of people used to say, oh, I'd love to move to Maui. I'd love to live in Hawaii. And then they get there and they realize that there's one road and it goes in a complete circle. And they quickly thought, I need to get back to the mainland. But this island of Crete was a pretty good sized island. And especially in the ancient times, it was a very powerful, powerful place to be living and to be working and also to be serving in the work of the ministry. Because of their prosperity, the Cretans actually had a very bad reputation because of how prosperous they were, the Cretans, as Paul quotes from the poet Epimenides, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's not quite the reputation that you hope to garnish, but they did. We don't know much about Titus, this man that this letter was written to from the book of Acts because he is not mentioned. However, he is mentioned in a number of passages in the New Testament. Now here's a little bit about who Titus was. Titus was a Greek Christian. In Galatians chapter two, verse three, Paul writes and says, yet not even Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. He wasn't going to go along with the laws of Moses, according to Judaism. We also see that Titus was a tremendous help to Paul. He was a big help. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 7, it says, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. To be known as somebody that helps, somebody that is a huge help, somebody that lifts someone's spirit. What a great blessing that is. But Titus was on board with the work of the gospel. Planting churches, 
ministry, it's no easy task. It's no small feat. There's a lot of difficulties that come from serving the Lord. And you know exactly what I'm talking about if you're a follower of Jesus. There are things that will try to trip you up and discourage you and get you to fall out, to fall off, and to no longer run your race. Titus was a man that could be counted on. He was on board with not only just following Jesus, but being involved in the work of the ministry. What a great responsibility Titus was given. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 and 23, I'd like you to listen to this description of Titus' character. Paul writes, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. And if anyone acquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if your brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. I mean, could you imagine if your name was there in the Bible next to, next to Paul's, where he says, you know, Titus, insert your name there. Titus is a trusted companion. He is the man that gets the job done. He is like-minded. He shares the same vision. He has the same heart. He's cut from the same cloth. I don't even have to try to make him into something because he already is. What an amazing thing to be said. It's not too often that you find somebody that you're like-minded with when it comes to the service of the Lord. You know, often as a pastor, that's the case. And I've been so blessed to have two guys that are assistant pastors that are cut from the same cloth and that share the same heart and have the same love for the Lord and the love for you and the love for the scriptures and are active in their faith. And what a great testimony it is to the faithfulness of God at work. So Titus was a trusted companion. He was a co-laborer of Paul's. He was also a courier, someone that could be trusted with communicating the letters the messages, the heart behind the things that Paul was writing. And he was an overseer of overseers. He's a great guy. Titus, he doesn't come along too often. He had the same vision, same urgency, same commitment as the apostle Paul. You know, if you've ever started a company and you're a visionary, maybe you're an entrepreneur, and you have this vision to do something that's unprecedented. Nobody's ever done it before. There's not very many people that will share that same vision or that will feel the same way that you do about your company or your product or your service. But then when there's somebody that comes along that says, I share that same heart, I share the same vision, I believe in what is being communicated, what is being done, there's a, an amazing thing that happens there. Somebody comes alongside and holds the same convictions and has the, really the same heart, and it's an important thing. And so Timothy was one of those guys. Titus was another one. And in verse 4, we'll read of Titus chapter 1. You can look at it. It says, To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. What we're going to begin today, and if you're here for the first time, you started at a great Sunday. We're going to be starting a series that I have entitled The Power of Commitment. You're going to see from this study that God entrusts you with or commits things to you that he asks in return for you to be committed to. In Paul's letter to Titus here, we'll read one of the strongest declarations of the deity of Jesus Christ. As Paul describes Jesus as being our great God and Savior, we'll get there in chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul writes, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In addition... Although there are only 46 verses in this letter to Titus, it contains one of the strongest verses regarding God's grace and godly living coupled with the acknowledgement of Jesus' first and second coming. These are huge tenets of our faith that are found in this small little letter of just 46 verses. In Titus chapter two, would you look there at verses 11 and 12? It says, for the grace of God, 
that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this letter, we'll also read very clearly of what the scriptures has, have to say about the roles of men and women in the church, servants, leaders, elders, overseers, and even the practical ways of dealing with false teachers that creep into the church. And ultimately, we'll be reading and studying what will be describing how a church should be led, the type of people that should and should not be leading, and how doing good, and how doing good in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit is what each Christian should be doing. So we have a lot to bite off and a lot to chew. So let's go ahead and get started. Point number one this morning is this, the power of commitment. And let's begin reading in verse one of Titus chapter one. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Verse two, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our savior. Paul, there's some important things to notice about him here. Paul's commitment to what was committed to him by God brought many to salvation. It brought the birth of innumerable churches and raised up innumerable leaders, even in the church today, that is reaching more people every single moment. It says here, verse two, that which was committed to me. Do you know today that God has committed something to you? Often we'll look at somebody else and say, well, the Lord has entrusted him with that great responsibility or the Lord has committed to her that great responsibility. Each of us actually need to understand this, this morning that God has committed something very special to you. And what you will see, and hopefully if you've missed this leading up to this point, you will see from this study through Titus that your commitment to what has been committed to you by God is densely packed with innumerable blessings from the Lord. This responsibility, whatever it may be, is loaded with blessings from the Lord. God commits something to you. He says, I'm going to give this to you. Be responsible over it. I'm going to entrust you with this. Lead well. In the Greek language, this word committed is translated and it's really used in the New Testament to describe conviction, to describe a trust to which a man is impelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative of law and soul. Something that is moving you in the deepest part of who you are. And if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that, my friends, would be the leading of the Holy Spirit, that you believe in your heart of hearts that what you're doing is right before God, that what you've been called to do or have been entrusted with is something that you take pride in, that you don't discard it, you don't slack off, but rather you're honored by being entrusted with something from the Lord. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we must confess that being committed to what God has committed to us can be difficult at times. There's not one follower of Jesus that has not had a challenging time following after Jesus. But in the first three verses of Titus, we find some foundational truths to establishing ourselves as mature, strong, and committed followers of Jesus. Now, I wonder if that's on your list. I hope that I could be a strong, mature, committed follower of Jesus. Does that ring any bells for any of you? And you're thinking like, Lord, you know, the end game for me following after you, I hope that I could be a immature, weak, and non-committal type of Christian. No, of course not. 
These three things that I see here are what I want for my life and that I want for our church. Strong, mature, and committed. If you think about those three words, how does that play itself out in your private life? How does that play itself out in your family dynamic, at your job, as a follower of Jesus? Are you known as strong? Are you known as mature? Are you known as committed? I want to be known as such. My prayer for you is that you would be as well. Paul, a bondservant of God, look there again at verse 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement, listen to this, of the truth which accords with godliness, and we're going to look at that in just a moment, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Next week, we're going to look at how the mature, strong, committed follower of Jesus is contrasted with somebody who is the exact opposite of those things. Those that are a true follower of Jesus will not just acknowledge the Lord with their lips, but their lifestyle will back it up. What we will see, though, that we do not want to be is somebody that will acknowledge or give lip service to the Lord, but then not have anything to follow through to back that up. We have four things listed here. If you're taking notes in verses one through three, there are four important things. And I'm hoping today that the way that this is broken down as you study the Bible, that you'll be able to take ownership for it, but that you'll be able to have some things that you can take away from the scriptures that are easily applied to your life that will serve as a checklist for you as you grow in your relationship with the Lord. And here's the list. There's four things right off the top. For the follower of Jesus, number one, they have faith in God. Number two, they have the truth according to godliness. Number three, they have the hope of eternal life. And number four, listen to this, they have commitment from the Lord and commitment to the Lord. Commitment from the Lord and commitment to the Lord. So let's break these things down. The first one being faith. Faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith. Have you ever noticed how insulated your faith is? I know I have. Faith is like the nucleus, but then it's surrounded with all of these things that we would consider blessings. You know, maybe it's financial, maybe it's real estate, maybe it's our health, maybe it's relationships. You know, it could be a whole bunch of things. But then all of a sudden, something starts digging through those layers. You know, removing the insulation to where that faith stings like a nerve that just got struck. And then it's, there's the faith. I feel that. I'm going to have to start trusting in the Lord now. Oh, this is really, really not looking good. I'm going to have to actually use my faith. Faith in Jesus is the foundation for truth. In a world that's telling you there is no truth or make up your own truth, and you've heard me say it before that if your truth isn't God's truth, then it's Satan's lie. But faith in Jesus is the foundation for all truth. It's actually the foundation for godliness, for hope, and for eternal life. Your faith in the Lord enables you to receive from the Lord. Your faith enables you to commit to the work that God has called you to be involved with. By your faith, you receive a commitment from the Lord. 
By that same faith, you're able to honor your commitment to the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith. A person of faith is a committed person. You know, maybe for those of you that are single, hoping to get married one day, and you know, maybe you've done the whole dating thing and it just wasn't very pleasant. Uh, you know, honestly, it's hard, I think, even more so nowadays to find somebody uh, that follows Jesus if you're a single person. It seems back in the day it was tough, but even now, you know, you never know. And there's a whole lot of crazy out there, and, and, and sometimes we can get ourselves in a pretty, pretty bad situation. You know, and the last thing that you want in a relationship is somebody who doesn't want to commit to being in a relationship. You know, we would never want to, to settle down, quote unquote, or look at being in a long-term relationship with somebody that just is not committed to being in one. You know, one day they're in, one day they're out, oh, I'm not feeling it. You know, you don't want to be on that roller coaster. You need some sort of, sort of stability. I can't be getting jerked here and there. Like, I need to know where I stand. This, this non-committal thing's just not going to work. Commitment is huge. We want it in our business ventures. Like, I want a business partner that's committed. You're invested. What about in our relationship with the Lord? Are we committed to him? See, a person of faith is committed to what God has committed to them. Meaning that the Lord has blessed you with, with things that you're to steward. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's a bank account. Maybe it's a portfolio. Maybe it's a skill set. Maybe it's some sort of relationship. Or maybe it's some sort of responsibility where you're teaching and instructing and discipling. Whatever it might be, God has entrusted you with it. But if you lack faith, you will go nowhere. Because foundationally, faith is what enables you to do what God's called you to do. If I have no faith, my works don't mean anything. My works are not a replacement for my faith. If I have no faith, then I will not know what truth is. Because if I don't know who the way and the truth and the life is, how am I going to know what the truth is, which way to go, and how to live my life? So a person of faith is a committed person. Secondly, we look at truth. In John chapter 18... Verses 37 and 38, this would be a passage that we would typically read on Good Friday. It was after Jesus' betrayal. He's standing before Pilate. He had been bludgeoned. He was not in a good place physically. Jesus was about to be crucified. And as Jesus stood before Pilate, it says for us in John 18, verse 37, Pilate therefore said to Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We're all living in the same world, aren't we? We all see the same things that are happening. And it is mind-boggling the things that we are seeing as labeled truth. Things that are being labeled as acceptable. And how if you have any touch on reality that you're labeled a hateful person and that you need to be silent. That there are no alternative views to whatever is the perceived truth of the month. That's why it's important for you as the church today. That's why the emphasis is upon the teaching of the word of God so that you might know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because as Jesus stood there before Pilate, that Roman governor, 
And he said, I've come to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. If you think about how many voices are saying, this is truth, this is truth, that is truth, this is truth, that is truth, this is truth. We're inundated constantly via social media, via the news, via, you know, whatever we might be hearing. Oh, that's the truth. No, this is the truth. No, that's the truth. No, that's your truth. That's my truth. No. And, and all these different voices. If you want to know the one and only truth, it comes from the one and only son of God, Jesus Christ. You know the truth. It's because it was spoken from his mouth. You know the truth because it was recorded for you in his word. And with all the voices trying to speak into your life as a follower of Jesus from, you know, social media influencers, pop culture icons, popular podcasters, it's important that you know the voice of Jesus. That you know what is truth. Because without truth, mankind is completely lost and will be destroyed. And that's what's happening in our own country. Satan is the father of all lies. Jesus is the truth, and he sets you free from the lies. But as Jesus spoke to Pilate, this is how Pilate responded. He said, what is truth? It's the same question that we've been asking for a long time. It's the same question that I have junior high schoolers asking and grown adults. Hey, what, what is truth? If you have noticed that there has been a slip in our culture regarding truth where people don't know where truth is or what truth looks like, you're astute. Because there are a lot of people in the world today that are treating the lie of Satan as if it's the good moral truth that needs to be implemented everywhere. And there's a danger. For the church to no longer know the, what the truth is and to no longer be the salt and light in this earth. Because without Jesus, we will not know the truth of God's love and plan for your life. And if I were to ask you an honest question, who do you think it is that wants to keep as many people from knowing the truth about God's love for them and his plan for their life? Think about it honestly. Who is it? Satan. Satan would like to keep as many people from knowing the truth of God's love for them and the truth of God's plan for their life. And if he can get, hey, look over there and smoke screens over there and let's talk about this over here and never hone in on the truth of God's word, then he will accomplish his mission. That's why you as an ambassador of Jesus Christ in your circle of influence have the truth and have the power to be able to be committed to what God has committed to you. See, without truth, you won't know what pleases God. You won't know how to have your sins forgiven or how you can even go to heaven for that matter. So the follower of Jesus is a person of faith and he's a committed person. The follower of Jesus is, a, is committed to truth. I hope you have that same commitment. That you're committed to the truth because the truth is not very popular. And it's becoming acceptable in fewer and fewer places. It used to be like truth was good wherever you went. It's like the American Express, you know, wherever I go. But now it's like, sorry, we don't take that here. Sorry, we don't take that here. You got something else? Well, I got this made up feeling of a lie. Okay, we accept that. The next thing we see in these three little verses is godliness. One of the first steps in living a life of godliness is recognizing that you're not godly. In case you missed what I just said, one of the first steps in living a life of godliness is recognizing and acknowledging that you're just not a godly person. And that you're incapable, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, to live godly. Oh, everyone's a good person. Hey, you might be nice, but we all have sinned. And we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no way that in this world that I'm living a godly life apart from God. 
It's impossible. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, for those of you that study through our study in Timothy, Paul wrote and said that there are some people in the church that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They deny the power of the Holy Spirit, but they look like it and they sound like it. They look and they sound like they're the real deal. See, without faith and without truth, you will also be without godliness. And that is where we are at as a society today. We have no faith. We have no truth. And now look what's become of it. There are those that have the form, but they'll never be transformed. You remember that? It was from the, you know, our, our study in the Greek language between the words morphosis and metamorphosis. One was a form of it. The other was transformed. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So do you realize that even now with your failures, with an argument that you may have had with your spouse on the way to church, with your kids being naughty or just being difficult because they are, that you have all the power that you need in every situation, in every single moment of every single day to be godly. You have that. The scriptures tell us that it's God's divine power that has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, whether or not we choose to exercise that power or to deny the lust of the flesh or to honor the Lord with what we're to be honoring him with, well, that's entirely, you know, on us. But we have everything we need. And when you recognize who you are in Christ, you will view your situations differently. When you recognize that you serve the one and true living God, and it doesn't matter if it's a million against one, you have the majority with the Lord on your side. And you can speak with boldness and you can act courageously and you can do the difficult, nay, even the impossible. Because with God, all things are possible. Because you're a man or woman of faith. You're committed. You're a man or a woman who follows Jesus, who's committed to truth. And because you're committed in faith and committed in truth, you're committed in godliness. And the next thing we see here is hope. Hope. Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt like this is bad and more bad and there's no, no way anything good's coming from this? Have you felt hopeless in your marriage? Because there's seasons in marriages, there are ups and downs and good days and bad days and you know, there's things that just happen. Sometimes it can be very discouraging. Same for your job, same for your situation in life. And maybe even here this morning, you might say, well, I want to be a man or a woman of faith, and I believe I have faith. I, 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 I'm committed to the truth. I know what God's word says. You know, my desire is to live godly and to be pleasing to the Lord. But then we cover this next one, which is hope. And maybe you feel a little downcast. Maybe you feel a little discouraged or a lot. And then I'm reminded, and I'd like to remind you of Psalm 42, verses 5 through 6. Where the psalmist says, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Are those questions that you're asking yourself? Well, he did. But he doesn't stop there. He says an exclamation. He says, I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Remember from our study last week how Abraham, it says that he praised God in advance, a proactive act of worship, and that proactive worship strengthened his faith. And I'd like to encourage you that if you come to church and you're downcast or you're without hope or you're discouraged, thank God that you're here. Because there are a whole lot of things outside these four walls to, to beat you down. 
And we do get beat down pretty regularly just living a normal life. But then you throw in some extra pressures here and there, and next thing you know, it's too much to bear. But then we come to the place where the Lord tells us to not forsake gathering to. And we're encouraged. And we're reminded, wait a second, my hope's not in man. My hope's not in an economy. My hope's not in, you know, a government. My hope's not in anything but the Lord. And then my spirit is lifted. When it looks really bad, I hope in the Lord. But what about for somebody who's not a Christian? Somebody that doesn't have the the relationship with God that we have, that we've been so blessed to have. What happens then when you don't have the hope that comes from knowing that when you're going to die, you're going to go to heaven? I mean, that knowledge of eternal salvation and access into heaven is a great card to keep in your back pocket as a follower of Jesus. Ah, glad I got that one. Life gets tough and one day I'm going to be out of here. And I know where I'm going. But what about the hopelessness that comes from knowing that you're not going to heaven when this life is over? I personally don't know of anything more worthy of hopelessness than realizing that you're going to hell. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And that would be me apart from Jesus. And people will hope because someone tells them their truth that, hey, be a good person. Have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Don't be Hitler. Don't do all these things and you should be good to go. And nowhere in God's word, which is God's truth, does it say that that's the case. It actually says that it's not by works that anybody's made right before God, but it's by faith that you are made forgiven, cleansed, holy, righteous. It's through faith. But yet in spite of the realization that, hey, things aren't looking good for me. If I were to die today, no bueno. In spite of the darkness of that spiritual place, the follower of Jesus has faith, truth, godliness, and hope. And if you don't know the Lord today, if you're here or you're watching, you can have that same faith, that same truth, that same godliness, that same hope. It's available to you. In Psalm 119, 166, it says, Lord, I hope for your salvation and I do your commandments. In Lamentations 3, verse 26, it says, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith, love, and as the helmet, the hope of salvation. As a follower of Jesus, I have hope in this life that no matter how crazy or how difficult or how bad things may seem, I have not only hope in this life, but I have hope in the next. This was Paul the Apostle. This was Titus. This was Timothy. Is this you? Are you committed to what God has committed to you? Faith, love, hope, truth, godliness, perseverance, endurance, commitment. That's what I saw here. He says, Paul says, God committed this to me. I like to talk about this just in closing this subject of commitment as a follower of Jesus. Listen carefully as we kind of come in for a landing here. When you place your faith in Jesus, God commits himself to you. God is faithful to you to honor his promises to complete the work that he has begun in your life, to forgive you of your sins, and to grant you passage to heaven. These are just a few among the thousands of promises that are in the Bible. God commits these things to you. You can count on them. 
He's going to establish you. He's going to lift you up. He's going to take what was meant for evil and turn it into something good. He's going to take all things and work together them for your good because you love the Lord, you're called according to his purpose. He is going to do what is impossible for you to do for yourself. He has committed himself to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, now he, speaking of God, establishes, establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and that's God. But listen to this. God has sealed us and given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So not only has he anointed you and established you and strengthened you and enlightened you, showing you the way, showing you the truth, showing you the life, he's given you the Holy Spirit as a seal that you belong to him. He's committed to you. The power of God's commitment to us overpowers our commitment to him. This, I think, is so important for us to understand because the Bible says that we've all sinned and we all have fallen, fallen short of the glory of God, meaning even as a follower of Jesus, we blow it and we can blow it royally. And we can deliberately sin. And we can even, knowing the truth, do things that just sabotage our lives. But the power of God's commitment to us overpowers our commitment to him. I think this is so important for us to understand because what God has committed to us enables us to personally commit to God. Okay, the Lord does this, and then I say, all right, Lord, it's gonna be my strength that I commit to you now. Oh, goody. No, it's the Lord says, I have done this for you, and then now I'm going to give you the power to stay committed to what I've called you to do. I'm going to provide everything that you need to be faithful with what I've entrusted you with. You're not going to fend for yourself. But this commitment of the Lord overpowering us is important, and I think it's bolstered by what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.13, where he says, even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. that God's promise to you to be faithful to you still stands when your promise to be faithful to God has been broken. It's my personal opinion that Timothy, and even studying these two letters of Paul's to Timothy, and like I'm saying, my personal opinion is that Timothy must have dealt with discouragement. I believe that Paul the Apostle did, and I believe that Titus did as well. For that matter, I believe, in my opinion, that every follower of Jesus deals with the discouragement of desiring to please the Lord, but either A, falling short, or B, realizing I am completely inadequate to do so. When we're not faithful to the Lord, it is depressing. When we weren't faithful to the Lord, now we feel condemned. We weren't faithful to our commitment to the Lord, and now we regret our mistakes. Yet we read in 2 Timothy that God is faithful in his commitment to us, even when we're not faithful in our commitment to him. This is important for us. Because you may trip up and you may fall but you'll never be in such a deep place that God isn't deeper still to lift you out of it. And you're never too far gone where his arm can't reach you. And he has committed to you some pretty amazing things. He's entrusted me with some pretty amazing things. 
But are we recognizing the blessings that come from just being committed to the things God's committed to us? Being faithful in the little things. Doing the small, tiny, seemingly unimportant things. Not treating our responsibility as less important than somebody else, or why can I have that position, or why can I have their authority or their responsibility, or why can I be entrusted with what they were entrusted with? Why do I have this? God is committed to you something. Are you committed to Him? In 2 Peter 1, verse 4, it says, By which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. And through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. In verse 2, if you look at Titus 1 again, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, I almost said cannot, like I was British or something. Con, can't, it's Ruth. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me, Paul says, this is what God committed to me, according to the commandment of God our Savior. So God's promise of salvation is what we put our hope in. It's his promise. He's not failed yet. He's not let me down yet. There have been times that I thought he did. Maybe you even feel like he's let you down. He hasn't. His ways are just not your ways and your ways are not his ways. He has a perfect track record. And there have been so many things in my life where I've been like, Lord, why did this happen? And why was that allowed to happen? And Lord, I thought you loved me. I thought I was your special chosen one, Lord. Lord, I can see how that stuff happens to those other people, but Lord, me. And the Lord always worked it out. So our hope in times of hopelessness must be placed in the promises of the Lord, that he is faithful and just in all of his ways. And so our hope is in a promise that can never be broken, never made void, or never, ever taken back. He's not going to give you a promise and say, ah, sorry, I'm kind of not feeling it today. Come see me on Tuesday. That's when the promises are in effect. So my eternal life here, as we see, this hope of eternal life began the moment that I placed my faith in Jesus. And so did yours who have made that same commitment of faith. Your eternal life began the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus. This is awesome. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And so the moment that we place our faith in Jesus, our spiritual life now overlaps with our physical life. Your physical life has an expiration date, but now your spiritual life supersedes your physical departure date. Your spiritual life is eternal. Listen to this verse, 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity or depart from sin. And this salvation that originated from God is now made manifest through the preaching of the gospel. This is what Paul's talking about. This is what he's writing to Titus. God committed to forgive sinful mankind of their sin by sending his only son, Jesus, to pay the price for their sin. In return, we commit to what God has committed to us. And in Paul's case, it was the preaching of the gospel. As the Holy Spirit took all of his intellectual understanding of the Bible and brought it alive. As Paul the Apostle was given the great responsibility of partnering in the laying of the foundations of the church. And so he writes to Titus, and this is where we will end this morning, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this is where we will pick up 
in part two of our series, The Power of Commitment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this place that we call home. And Lord, for as long as Orchard Hills School is our home, we want to say thank you for it. Lord, we do pray, Lord, over whichever building you may have for our church moving into the future, may your will be done and may you lead us in the way that we should go. Lord, we thank you for our children's ministry workers. We thank you for our kids that are learning about who you are at a level that's appropriate for them. We thank you, Lord, for the men and women that serve here so faithfully every week. We thank you, Lord, for those that come faithfully every week to worship you and study your word. Would you bless us, Lord? May we be committed to what you have committed to us. And Lord, what you've entrusted us with is unique to our calling. May we not downplay it. May we not discard it. But may we be faithful to be those men and women that you have called us and created us to be. And may we see, Lord, though it might be difficult, though it may cost us something, that there is such power and blessing to be found in our commitment to you. And we ask, Lord, for your work to be perfectly accomplished in our lives and in this church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you need prayer for anything, Pastor Jonathan and our prayer team will be available on my right and your left. We would love to pray with you over anything that you might need prayer for. So may the Lord bless you today. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus' name. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. And let's worship the Lord. 